Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I got to tell you, uh, the Phillies were in town last week. And, you know, this is the first time since I've been in L.A. that when the Phillies were in town, I didn't go to the game because they suck so bad that it wasn't worth me getting, like, beat up or stabbed. I mean, because, you know, there's always this rivalry between Phillies fans and Dodgers fans because it's so funny because what thing happened with uh, Shane Victorino years ago. And then people are like, oh, he's an asshole. He charged the mound. But then, of course, he ends up a Dodger for one season, and it's fine. And just like Jimmy Rollins. Oh, we hate Jimmy Rollins. Then now he's on the Dodgers, and he's fine. So I didn't go, and it was bummed, it bummed me out. But then I thought about it because I was here for four days. And I could have got tickets on StubHub. No lie. StubHub's the way to go if you want to get baseball tickets or any sporting event. Because if they don't sell out, people are bailing. Like I remember the replacements. I wanted to see the replacements. And I didn't get them the first night. And on the first night, I could have got tickets for like 17 bucks because I guess people didn't couldn't weren't going or they had tickets and weren't some and then it was a great concert so the next night they went back up to like 40 bucks so i went to i could have got tickets for six dollars that's how bad the phillies are i could have gone to a game for six dollars and i didn't anyway enough about that i don't even know if my next guest is a sports fan i know he was born in syracuse so he might be like a new york fan but my guess is anthony stark how you doing anthony i'm doing good good and you call me tony I can call you Tony. So we talked about that because, you know, because people, you know, when you see it, because it's so funny in, in Hollywood, you never know, because as you know, this uh, was, was there a Tony Stark or just like Anthony better or because names it's no, it's just, uh, you know, uh, it, you know, it's one of these things. Tony is a nickname, you know, and, and, and I've always gone by Anthony. I always sign Anthony and my mother still calls me Anthony and my sister still calls me Anthony and my family in Holland and in Australia still call me Anthony. Everybody else calls me Tony. It happened when I went from, uh, high school to Marquette University, I, you know, how you try to reinvent yourself in college. And I, and uh, before I'd always corrected people. I'd say, no, it's, it's, it's Anthony, it's Anthony. And then uh, when I got to college, um, I just said, uh, whatever you want, you know, call me whatever you want. And it immediately became Tony. So that, that's, well, know. that's funny. Cause you yeah. always think that it's like, like with my name, you know, everyone calls me Coop, you know, that's yeah. Coop. You know, but some people think my first name is Cooper. But also for you, you know, you're you don't look Italian. So right. people don't think of you as an Anthony because, you know, I grew up back east and right. Anthony right. is yeah. Anthony Manginello yeah. or Anthony yeah. Esposito or yeah. right. you know, the guy with right. the, the chains and stuff yeah. like that. Work who works in, quote unquote, sanitation. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Now, now you're born in Syracuse. I was born in Syracuse, but uh, when I was five, we moved to the Bay Area. And then when I was 10 we moved to the Chicago area um, from a little town about an hour north of Chicago called Lindenhurst. Okay. And uh, went to Antioch Community High School. I um, was just back home and did one of the eulogies for my high school mentor and drama teacher, a wonderful guy named Ken Smouse. And uh, there's a real, a real arts community kind of in that part of Northern Lake County in Illinois, a, a lot of it due to him. And uh, so it was great that I was there to be able to be a part of that. Now, when you were a kid, did you did you know you wanted to act? I mean, it must have been weird. I always say also because you were five and you moved to a new town. So you have to meet new friends. And then when yeah. you were, said you were 10, yeah. you moved. And I always think sometimes when kids, because I grew up in the same area and went to the same school. And I think sometimes for kids, when you're younger, when you move to a new area, it's it's almost like you're auditioning. So right. I, I think it's in, it's in an early age, you know how to make sure that you know you're popular it, or it this. It kind of puts the whole thing in your DNA because um, you'd be amazed if you know you probably know this from doing your show that when you talk to enough actors, the percentage of them that are like uh, military brats that you know had to go to five different high schools and moved you know maybe 12, 13 times between uh, kindergarten and by the time they graduated high school. And so many actors come from that kind of, you know, I guess peripatetic lifestyle where they just moved a lot and had to reinvent themselves a lot. And so, um, yeah, that's uh, that's common with with actors, I think. So did you know as a kid you wanted to act or what did you want I to definitely do? did. You know, I mean, um, I, I, I always say that I loved TV so much that I, I found a way to crawl inside of it. You know, I mean, that was sort of what I wanted to do as much as anything else was be on TV. What were some of the shows you're watching? Cause I think we're around the same age. So what were some of the shows you were, were you like a Brady Bunch kid or would you, you know, I was uh, sure I watched the Brady Bunch and Partridge family and all that stuff. But what I was really into and where, what I think my comedic education was, was Saturday nights on CBS where it went from the Mary Tyler Moore show, to the Bob Newhart show. Um, I know I'm leaving a couple out here, but then Jefferson's then, uh, no. uh, no, all but, in the family, all in the family. And was um, MASH on Saturday? Um, hmm? Was MASH on Saturday? Was that the... MASH, I think, was on Tuesdays. Okay. But, um, uh, Matt, you know, but those ones, particularly Bob Newhart, for some reason, had a real impact on me in terms of my sense of humor. Um, 
Carol O'Connor had a huge impact on me on how to act real and funny. And um, I still think that his performance as Archie Bunker is one of the most nuanced, brilliant things I've ever, ever seen. And then, of course, that night culminated with Carol Burnett show, which was, you know, like a religion to me. And um, particularly all the stuff with Tim Conway and Harvey Corman and all, all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, it just it just it was a great place to study comedy and 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 not um, although I've always loved stand up and done some stand up. Um, it was a great place to study acting comedy, you know, being on a sitcom and stuff like that. And, you know, um, ironically, the first thing that I did out here really was um, a show with a legendary television comedian, uh, Danny Thomas. Um, where I was uh, on a syndicated uh, sitcom with him, and uh, that was my first gig out here. So, I mean, it was like, I felt like I uh, had been preparing for it my whole life. When you were in high school, were you doing acting? Did you get into theater? Yeah, I was very, very into it. I mean, I uh, I was very into um, the, uh, the the high school plays, and also we had a really, we have a really good uh, uh, community theater in Antioch, Illinois, called uh, PM&L, uh, Palette Mask and Liar, it stands for, and... Uh, there's just a lot of really great local uh, actors and directors and people like that around there. Um, also close to a guy who runs that named Tom Hausman. And um, so uh, I had the chance to play all kinds of stuff before I ever even went to Marquette. Um, I, uh, you know, uh, played all kinds of roles, you know, and worked mostly with adults. And, and uh, you know, it gave me a sense of stagecraft and just sort of learning the nuts and bolts of it. And then... Um, I uh, ended up winning a performing arts scholarship to Marquette. Liberace. Yes. Um, I, uh, uh, Liberace had donated, because uh, he's from Milwaukee, donated um, this huge scholarship fund to Marquette, and he left it up to the faculty there to select the recipients. And so people, kids came from all, all, all over the country to audition, and I auditioned, and it ended up paying for about half my tuition. So it was awesome. So now and then your other you you majored in theater and Spanish literature. Yes. How how did you pick? I mean, I didn't even know that was a major. Well, I, the thing is, you know, my parents are immigrants from the Netherlands, and they weren't too keen on the idea of me becoming a professional actor, which I don't blame them for. And um, so uh, I was it, the idea was not that I was going to be a theater major. It's just that I kind of snuck in and won this scholarship. Okay. And made my dad an offer he couldn't refuse because. It was a condition of me receiving the scholarship that I had to be a theater major, you know. So I called him up one day. He was an insurance executive, and I said, "Dad, I, it's kind of a good news, bad news thing." And he goes, "All, all right, give me the good news." And he said, uh, "I said, well, um, I won this scholarship that I auditioned for on Saturday, and uh, pays for about half my tuition." And he goes, well, "What's the bad news?" He said, "Well, I have to be a theater major." <laughs> And he paused and went, okay, congratulations, you're a theater major, but you're going to double major in something else and go to law school. So that was the plan right up until I was like a, a junior, and I was kind of getting ready to take the LSATs, the law school entrance exams, and I was getting really depressed, and I finally figured out it was because I didn't want to go to law school. So I started driving myself down to Chicago, which is like a two-hour drive from Milwaukee, and um, auditioning for professional stuff. And... Um, Jane Alderman was the big casting director in town at the time, and she, I met her, and uh, she started bringing me in for things, and about the second thing she brought me in for was a movie of the week for uh, CBS, back when they used to do movies of the week, right. um, uh, starring Judd Hirsch, based on a true story, uh, this Dr. Petrovsky who found a way to stimulate muscle movement in paralyzed people by just directly stimulating the muscles, and like if you ever saw... When Christopher Reeve was hurt, they, they'd have him on like a, a, a um, you know, a, um, a stationary bike and stuff. You know, obviously he couldn't pedal that. It was sort of his body pedaling itself. Okay. That was all developed by this doctor in Ohio, like, uh, I think in the late 70s. So that was my first uh, gig playing a, a quadriplegic okay. in a movie of the week. What movie was that? First Steps? First Steps, yeah. So now did you have a big part or? I had a pretty big part, yeah, you know, and it was very emotional and all that kind of stuff. So it was it was a big deal. I mean, um, I kind of felt, you know, it's funny, it, it, this tends to happen. Like I had to make something happen to persuade my parents that I could work professionally. Right. And because they, they were not happy when I said, I don't think I'm going to go to law school. But then when I got this job and I got paid to do it and uh, they realized that that is not just a, a, a pipe dream or a fantasy. 
they got much more supportive. And uh, when I got out to L.A. and was doing that sitcom with Danny Thomas, One Big Family, which is son Tony Thomas uh, of Wit Thomas, uh, who did, did the Golden Girls and was doing right. a bunch of stuff at that time. They did, I think, Dead Poets Society, all kinds of stuff. And um, But uh, when I got that gig and, like, was a series regular on something and, and, and making real dough, you know, my dad flew out and he was floored, you know, <laughs> so it was great. Now, when you got that, were you, did you get that out of Chicago or did you come out here or how did that happen? Um, uh, no, I, I came out here. Did you move out here or you just came to visit? I came out here because I got my first part in a feature uh, called Nothing in Common, starring Tom, Tom Hanks and Jackie Gleason, yeah. who was directed by Gary Marshall. And how I got into that was he wanted a lot of improvisation in this movie because it, it took place in the advertising world. And he wanted the little pod of, of, uh, of um, you know, creative types at the agency, which, you know, included all these like major people from Second City in the cast. It was John Kapalos, Mona Lydon, Mike Haggerty, um, um, uh, uh, Dan Castellaneta, you know, the voice of Homer Simpson. It was all like everyone's first movie. And I got in there because they were all seasoned uh, improvisers from Second City. I had not done any of that, but I had a good first audition for Gary. And Gary Marshall kind of went... Um, so, you're funny. It's good. We're going to have a call back on Sunday. Can you improvise? Have you done the improvising? And I lied. And I said, yes, Gary. I, uh, I have my own improv group up in Milwaukee. We call ourselves Razor's Edge, and uh, it's completely improvised. No prepared set pieces or anything. He goes, good, good, because you're going to come in on Sunday with the best of the best from Second City, and we're all going to improvise for three hours. And then I went home and cried. Yeah. Because <laughs> I thought I really have screwed myself now. So, um, but what I did was I wrote a bunch of pieces because I anticipated that it was going to be in the ad world and it was going to be about ad pitches, people pitching crazy ideas. And, and I picked like voices and characters that I like to do, and I just wrote a bunch of bits. And when, we, when I got in there, I sort of laid in the weeds and then plugged in these pre-written bits, and it, it worked. I kind of, like, got away with it. Cut to two years ago in 2013, Gary, who has his Falcon Theater right, right down the street here, um, uh, asked me if I wanted to be in a world premiere of a play called Billy and Ray, which was all about how – a really uh, great play by Mike Benzavenga, which was about how uh, Billy Wilder – the, the famous Austrian director and Raymond Chandler, the crime writer, were put together by this producer who I played uh, named uh, uh, Joe Sistrom at Paramount because Sistrom had optioned this piece of material that after he optioned it for a lot of money, he realized there's no way I'm going to be able to make it under the Hollywood production code because it's just filled with sex and adultery and murder and all these things that you could not display. So he went to them and put them together because he thought they could figure out a way to do it, to write a screenplay that could be shot. And the book that he handed them was Double Indemnity. And together they invented film noir by suggesting everything okay. and showing nothing. Like even a guy who hanged himself in that, in that genre. You know, you, you couldn't show a guy hanging there, but you could show the shadow of a guy. Right. They're all this kind of stuff. Very suggestive dialogue. Very, very dirty stuff if you examine it. But anyway, um, I hadn't worked for Gary since Nothing in Common, so it's you know a couple decades ago, and we were doing a talk back with the audience, and um, um, I previously said to to Gary, you know, I said, you know, I, I I got a confession to make. I lied my way into your movie, and he loved that. Because his idea is that it's all about that kind of chutzpah. Well, that's know? improv too, though. If you and think it's, of, you, it sure you is. think that's the yes. most basic kind of improv when they say. Okay, we need this, and you go. Okay, that's improv right. thinking on your foot. Right, Feet. right, right. The, the 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 answer to the question, "Can you ride a horse?" is always yes. Then you go out and learn how to ride a right. horse. But um, uh, so at every callback, you know, he'd tell a few stories. People would tell a few stories. Then he'd turn to me and go, "Tony, tell the story." <laughs> and then I tell the story about how I snuck my way into Hollywood. See, that's cool. So, so you did nothing in comedy, and so you were out here. Did you stay out here then? I came out here, and. Uh, I had just gotten out of college, 
and I had just gotten a play in Chicago because my plan was to be a Chicago theater actor. That's what that was your goal. Yeah, and but I at the same week that I got that play, I got nothing in common, so I had to quit the play to do the movie, and it brought me out to L.A. So I kind of at that point I didn't really have anything to go to, back to Chicago for because I wasn't really established there. So I found a roommate in Los Feliz, you know, and um, and thought I'll I'll just kind of hang out through the holidays and into the spring and into the you know pilot season and see what happens because we were shooting the movie like October November we were finishing it out here. So I went home for Christmas. I came back out and thought you know I'll give things a try and. Um, I didn't get a uh, – well, I, I did get a, a series actually later that summer. But what I got first was um, a production of Sam Shepard's play Buried Child at South Coast Repertory, which uh, Jane Alderman in Chicago had, had recommended. And that's in Orange County, right? Yes. And a wonderful uh, theater. And um, uh, uh, an actor turned TV director named Sam Wiseman was directing, and he was talking to Jane Alderman in Chicago and said, who do you – who, who do you know who's out here who might be good for the part of Vince and Barry Child? And she recommended me, so I got an audition through uh, Rick Pagano, and um, uh, the casting director, and I got it. And so, you know, that was my first, like, job was this play out here. And then Bob Gersh saw me, uh, the, the agent, saw me in that play, so I got representation from that. And then also while I was doing that play, I read for One Big Family, uh, which was the Danny Thomas show. And that kind of got settled me here. So what was that like? I mean, you sit there, you know, you're, you're TV, you love TV. Right. And then you're working with Danny Thomas, yeah. Marlo, you know, it's like yeah. thing. And it's your, you know, it's one of your first big auditions, I'm guessing. Yeah. And so what's it like when you nailed it? I mean, because you're all of a sudden it's a series. And then what was it like when it got canceled? Because it must be, you know, you think something with Danny Thomas is going to stay. You know what? I was okay with it because um, I had a great time for the year that we did it. But um, I was on such a roll. You know, uh, and it was, you know, a a first-run syndication show, which was something they were experimenting a lot with sitcoms at that time. I knew a lot of people weren't seeing it, and I kind of didn't want to spend the next five years of my life doing it, just because I thought, you know, I want to get out there and see what else is going on. And so um, as soon as we got the word that it was canceled, I started auditioning again and then i think the next uh job i got was a little movie called return of the killer tomatoes i've heard that was clooney in that george clooney was my co-star really i had billing above george clooney did you guys work a lot of scenes together or oh yeah we were like in practically every scene of the movie together and we you know improvised a lot of stuff and rewrote some stuff and you know worked with the producers and director to kind of see you know how funny we can make it, and it ended up being like a goofy, funny little movie. I thought oh, you were leading the movie, and you're yeah. you also on a Twenty One Jump Street. And I and uh, yeah, it's same year I did a a movie called Eighteen Again with George Burns and Charlie Slaughter, and um, and then at the end of the year I did an episode of Twenty One Jump Street, which must was, be cool. It was Jump Street. Oh yeah, it was it was a big deal to be on Jump Street. That, that was yeah. that was the show. We all loved it. Man. Yeah, I mean we all like you know we're like oh my god Jump Street because I'm I, it's eighty seven. I mean yeah, I just I got graduated college in eighty six, so yeah. we all were like oh and they dress cool, you know. Yeah, I want to get the yeah, yeah, jacket. Yeah. Like I want to be Booker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it was it was awesome because um the other thing that was great about it is that I worked mostly with Peter Deloise on that show on that episode and. Uh, I on one big family, his brother Michael Deloise. There's three Deloise boys, and I know them all really well. And um, uh, so I just worked with Michael, who's the middle son, and Peter's the oldest son, and he was on, you know, one of the main guys on that show. And um, so uh, I already knew Peter, you know, because um, uh, through Michael. So uh, it was very fun and very comfortable. And, yeah. So you're, you're on a roll, you're getting to work, and then then I ended up being a Bond movie. The next year, yeah. Now, how did that come about? And were, and were you a Bond kid growing up? Because, oh, sure. See, I wasn't a huge fan. I know. I remember they used to show on ABC on Sunday nights. They would right. show it. Right. I still remember watching. I think it's Live and Let Die or whatever, where the guy's yeah, yeah, in the yeah. back going, whoa, yeah. the guy in the back of the train. But yeah. I never really went. That's, 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 that's several of them. <laughs> yeah, but that's, but I, I never was a huge Bond. I mean, it's good, but I, you know. But now, how did that come about? Were you excited when you heard you were reading for a Bond movie? Very. Um and I was really, re- I was very excited to be reading for it, and it was a, a big deal and a big audition. And they didn't have the script uh, for it, and so Jane Jenkins and Janet Hershenson, the uh, casting directors, um, they gave us a copy from 
what had just been a, a big miniseries called The Billionaire Boys Club. I, I think about these rich kids who committed these murders. Yeah. And um, and it was it was juicy material. It was it was it was good material. It had, it had layers to it. And um, I just kind of made some funky choices with it, you know, and kind of took a few risks. And John Glenn, the director, liked what I did with it. And um, so I just read with uh, Jane Jenkins putting me on tape. Um, she showed tapes to John Glenn. He responded to what I was doing with the character. And um, and then it was very easy after that. It's so funny how sometimes these little jobs, they can kind of kill you to get them. And sometimes these bigger jobs, they make it really easy. And he already decided that he liked what I was doing as an actor, so he just wanted to meet me. So I went and I met with him, and I, I you know, kind of did this deflecting technique that I have, which I kind of started asking him about himself, which usually people respond well to, you know, right. instead of just talking about yourself. And I found out he was in the Royal Air Force, and I asked him about that. And we just started talking about stuff like that. And I think he just wanted to know that I wasn't a jerk, I think, because, you know, you go make these big movies, and you're directing them, and uh, you're stuck with these people down in Mexico for, like, five months, you know. And, um, um, and then they had me back in again to meet uh, Barbara Broccoli, and Michael Wilson, who are still producing the Bond film, and the you know the kind of godfather of the whole thing, their uh, their father, uh, Cubby Broccoli, as you know, and um, and I just met all of them and talked to them, and so they could just have a chance to meet me, and then that was it, got the gig. So that must have been awesome, though. You're in a oh, Bond movie. Oh man, it was great. It was it was so fun. Yeah, it was it was uh, so fun. We were all over Mexico, and and uh, you know there was. Uh, and this is still a lot how they do it. They don't do a whole lot of CG on those rodeos. They really blow stuff up. And <laughs> we were we were in Mexicali, I remember, and they were just blowing up these huge tanker trucks that were supposedly filled with gasoline. And it was from three football fields away when they blew these things up, you could feel the heat. Wow. Yeah. So you did that. So after that, though, what do you, then what do you go back to doing? I, mean, I know you have a lot of TV spots, but do you, do you sit there and go, I was in a Bond movie? Do you get a little cocky because you're in a bomb movie or how does that because well, you're a young you know, guy I, mean... I, I don't think i ever got cocky about anything i just you know i was always hopeful and i always you know was you know you, you at that at that point you're hoping that you can kind of graduate and, and do more features but it didn't happen for me for some reason you know um unfortunately that particular james bond movie didn't perform that well uh financially um a lot of it was timing it was the summer that uh batman came out and Lethal Weapon 2 came out, all of them like a couple weeks before. And it kind of got, those were such humongous movies that the it kind of, we got uh, drowned out in the noise, you might say. At least in the States. It did very well in Europe. Um, but it wasn't one of these things that kind of catapulted anyone in particular to any, any uh, big deals. And despite the fact that there were people like Benicio Del Toro and people like that in it. But they became famous later from other projects. Now you're acting around, then you end up in the Carlin Show. Mm -hmm. Now, as a fan of comedy, were you very excited? Were you a fan of his stand-up? Yeah, I was. I was a huge fan of his stand-up. I've always been a huge fan of stand-up, and um, to the point where I would study guys. And you know, I, I, I when I did Seinfeld, you know, um, I I quoted an entire bit to Jerry that he hadn't probably done since 1982 because I saw it on TV, and um. And Carlin, you know, I just remember he was the first host of Saturday Night Live. And um, Saturday Night Live was, you know, had a huge impact on me also when that came on. And um, and I was just a big fan of all of his appearances on The Tonight Show. And it kind of um, exposed me to a kind of comedy that was more language-based. And um, I, I think that Carlin's... Um, George Carlin's contribution to how we can be aware of how we're being manipulated by language is almost on a level with George Orwell. I mean, he was one of those guys that let you know that you're getting screwed when people start using euphemisms, stuff, right. stuff like that. You know, um, he's got this great bit on uh, 
on um, what we now call PTSD. Um, and just briefly, what, what he was saying is that in World War I, if a guy came back with a destroyed nervous system because of exposure to combat, they called it shell shock. Shell shock. You know, it's got a nice alliterative, punchy, two-syllable kind of thing to it. Um, and even a six-year-old could probably tell you what that means. By the time they got to World War II, they called it battle fatigue. And this is what George would say is, look out. You went from two syllables to four syllables, right. and now it just sounds like he's tired. Right. Okay? By the time they got to Vietnam, I think, they called it post-traumatic stress disorder, which is eight syllables, and you feel like you need a psych degree to know what the hell that right. means. And then, of course, they do what they do all the time now, which is they just bury it in some kind of acronym, and it's PTSD, and it just doesn't sound like much of anything. Right. I'm sure the guy will get over it. He's probably got a bad cold or whatever, you know, and really, he's the same guy that came back from World War One. Right. It's, it's, he was great at that, so it must have been yeah. great working with him. It was, it was fascinating working with him because the thing is, you could have these kind of conversations with him. I really got to be good friends with him, and, you know, I'd have lunch with him and talk about these things, and uh, we had a, a rap party after every episode of The Carlin Show, and everybody came. From Sam Simon, who created The Simpsons, was our executive producer, uh, all the way down to the crew and everybody. We all went out to Timmy Nolan's in the valley here, right, right across from Warner Brothers, every Tuesday night. And we, we all kind of hung out after the show. It was great. And so I stayed in touch with George here and there on the phone. Um, and I also was good friends with his wife, who passed away, uh, Brenda Carlin. Um, I know Kelly. And, and um, I'm still good friends with Kelly. Yeah, she yeah. was she was on my show a while ago, and that's yeah. funny because I wanted to get her on. She did a show at the Falcon. Oh yeah, and I I saw I was there on you, opening night. Okay, because I didn't yeah. get to see it, but she's like, I'm really busy right now. Yeah. So now, what was it when that, when that got canceled? You must have been bummed because it was. Oh yeah. I mean, because that's one of those shows. I just said, you know, and in my backgrounds in stand up, I mean, he's a legend, and you know, and it, it's it's you know one of those things where I mean, I always I've told the story many times. How I bought an album when I was a kid, mm -hmm. Toledo Window Box. Well. Toledo window box. I found years later. I found out, is what you grow pot in. But yeah. as a kid, I didn't know that. My parents right. were square, as they would say. They didn't yeah. smoke pot. Right. And I brought it. And there's Carlin with his beard, with his pot leaves on his shirt. And I listened to that stuff. And then it was it was a matter of you know, I remember listening to his albums. And yeah. And, and you know, to work with someone like that must have been amazing, just yeah. because it's it's Carlin. I mean, it's like yeah. you know, it's not, it's not there's not many people who are, it would be like working with Pryor. Yeah. You know, it's like you're working. A with absolutely. I mean, there there's. You know, every comedian um, has their top five, and um, and Carlin and Pryor, who were friends, um, and and Carlin wrote for Pryor on his show actually, um, uh, and Rain Pryor and Kelly Carlin are still friends. You know, and um, he's if, in any comedian's top five, there's always Carlin and Pryor. They're always in there. You know, and depending on how um, how you know political or whatever they are you might have um anything f or, or how clean or dirty they work you know you might have also in that mix anyone from um um bill bill cosby to lenny bruce uh sam kinnison to to um uh, uh mitch hedberg you know but carlin and Pryor are always there oh, yeah they're always because they were and they yeah. were before their time that's yeah. the thing i mean carlin was so i mean he went to the dippy hippie dippy weatherman just changing his he rolled with the changes, which was yeah. excellent. So now, now you also you you did some. Uh, what was the last frontier? The last frontier was a short-lived series because I, you know, I've man, I've. Uh, How many series? You've been. I mean, you've been in a lot of series though. But you got to be happy. That's how I always say. Yeah. You know, even they're short-lived. It's such an accomplishment to get in a series that people don't get that. It's like you guys go through so much, right? So much, and to look at your IMDb, there's been a lot of series. Yeah, yeah, it's been a lot of stuff. You know, I'm still kind of. It's kind of funny. I'm still kind of waiting for that one that has legs, you know, that I could just hunker down on something for like seven years. And I hope, I think that will happen. I just hope that it's good. I hope it's a good one, you know? And um, I call it, I, you know, I'm still hoping for that Brian Cranston moment, you right. know, because um, I used to know Brian Cranston. Um, first of all, we were on the same episode of Seinfeld. Um, and uh, that's where I first met him. And Which is funny because Peter Melman was on earlier today, Seinfeld writer. Okay. He all was, right. Uh, sure. He wrote for years with that. Yeah. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. I think Spike Ferriston wrote my episode, okay. but, um, uh, but uh, you know, he was a guy that you would look at. I swear, when I first met Brian Cranston, I would, th I would think, oh, this is a charming, 
funny, talented, nice-looking guy. I wonder why he never made it, you know, that kind of thing. And then all of a sudden, kaboom, you know. And um, I think, you know, uh, uh, I have one friend who said it's all attrition. You just have to kind of wear them down. And um, uh, so I, I'm like, I am very fortunate, and I am very proud of the fact that I have booked all these things. Um, and you have to have some kind of faith that there's some reason why they didn't take off like a rocket when they did, because maybe you would have ended up being defined by something that later you wouldn't like it. Right. Yeah. So now you're also on Suddenly Susan. I was on Suddenly which, Susan. I thought that was a great show. I thought that yeah. was a funny show. I mean, and I, I'm you know I'm not a comedy snob, but it was one of the shows I'd watch, and it, it was it was well written. It was funny. Lovely people. I'm still you know uh, Facebook friends with Brooke Shields and you know stuff like that, and um, who's a very very nice person, and um, uh, and uh, very tragically we lost David Strickland, who was on that show, and he he he, he uh, took his own life at some point because he had problems with depression, but. Um, uh, it was a, a Nestor Carbonell and Kathy Griffin. There were a lot of really great people on that show, and uh, unfortunately for me, I was um, um, I was a recurring character, and they kind of phased me out fairly early. I'm not sure why. Right. Um, but um, they, I guess, uh, they wanted to make more room for the romance with uh, Judd Nelson, who uh, played my brother on the show, and. I thought it would have been funnier if they kept me around because right. my character was such a tool, you know, that um, it might have been funny for him interfering with their romance, but they saw it otherwise. Well, at that time you were doing a lot of comedy, but then yeah. you started swinging more to drama. That's true. Which, now, I got to ask you, because uh, I, 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 I watched the show Cold Case, and mm -hmm. you were in a cold case. Yeah. Did you did you kill someone or did you, did you die? Because one night I was at home watching TV of the Cold Case Marathon, uh -huh. and Robert Romanus, who was Damone of Fast Times at Ridgemont High, yeah was on my show and uh -huh. I'm watching and he played someone who killed someone. Then Reed Diamond was on and he played someone that killed someone. I'm sitting there going, this is so cool. Back, back episodes of people have been on my show who right. killed people. So I had to stay up for the next one. And my girlfriend's like, you're coming to bed. I'm like, no, I got to find out if the third one, did you kill someone in it? Or did you? I did not. I, I played a guy who was um, like this real son of a bitch who ran a, a hedge fund. And um, he gets this uh, inoperable brain tumor and, um, I remember that and he, he starts, he starts dying. Um, but at the same time, he starts hallucinating. And uh, in the course of the whole thing, he kind of has a chance to put his life together and kind of redeem all the broken relationships and all this kind of stuff um, before before he dies. It was an incredible part that had an incredible arc. I mean, the thing about guesting on Cold Case is that you really get to be the star of the show. They construct it in such a way that the guest star is the star of the show. It's his story or her story that they're trying to unravel. And it jumps back and forth in time in this very interesting way. And it was directed by Paris Barclay, who's a, a, an amazing uh, uh, television director and producer. And um, it was a beautiful script. And, um, yeah, it was a great experience. Now, what do you think? Why did you start transitioning into dramas? Was there any certain reason? Because, as I said, you did a lot of comedy, and then the dramas, as I look, you know, and then, you know, I mean, The Magnificent Seven, I guess. Yeah. That, that was a Western. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that was one. What was it like being in a Western? The best. Did you get to ride a horse? Oh, yeah. Now, did you know how to ride a horse? Pretty well. Okay. But we, we got a lot better, you know, and we worked with these really great wranglers, you know, these, you know, real cowboys who, um, Give, give you the shortcuts to just being more comfortable on a horse and safer on a horse and uh, look better on a horse, look more like a cowboy on a horse. And we, uh, you know, we had uh, Walter Scott, who's a great stunt coordinator, who's done mostly westerns, and a legendary wrangler, uh, who's sort of like the head cowboy and in charge of all the horses and stuff like that, a guy named Jack Lilly, who a lot of people in the industry know. And, um, um, you know, great cast, Ron Perlman, Michael Bean, Eric Close, you know, uh, and uh, uh, Andy Kavavit, Rick Worthy, Lori Holden, uh, me. And um, so uh, it was a great experience. I got to wear really cool clothes and have a gold tooth and a gun up my sleeve. And, and I was married at the time, and I'd come home, and my ex-wife would say, how was work? And I'd say, you know, 
uh, ride the horse, shoot the gun, kiss the girl, go home. Well, what can I say? Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. like that's like yeah. a kid's dream. Like yeah. kids, especially kids love Western. So I mean, it must have been interesting then. So you did that, and now did you ever fall off a horse? Uh, I did not, fortunately. fortunately did anyone not. get hurt like doing it? I mean, no, we 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 uh, managed not to get hurt. Although we did some pretty stunty stuff. I, I mean, uh, I think if it had gone longer, maybe somebody would have. But. Where did you shoot it at? Uh, right up in Santa Clarita. Okay, they shoot a lot of stuff up there, like in Western. Yeah. I know mm-hmm. Justified shot up there. Yeah, because you know there's still um, ranches up there. There's still places where you can turn a camera in 360 degrees and not see buildings. You know, and it's 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 in the zone as they call it, where you you don't have to be you know, on location. Uh, so, but in terms to answer your question, why the sudden shift from comedy to drama, I guess is because I'd been doing nothing but comedy, it seems, and I just wanted to also kind of let people know that I could act. And, uh, you know, in terms of drama, not that comedy isn't acting. But it's um, just looked at differently because people sit there and they think it's a sitcom. And yeah. for, in, for industry standards, like the norm, normal person doesn't understand that, but for this industry scenario, yeah, because you, you are a trained actor, so you right. want to sit there and say, right. "No, I can do more than make people laugh. I right. have chops." Right, right. And uh, what's funny about that is that once I started rolling in that direction, I've I've hardly done comedy since. Isn't that crazy? It, what? It, it is crazy because people people forget so quickly that that you know that, that you're funny, or you know, if you've done some drama and then you start doing comedies, they forget that you can that you can do drama. But um, you know, the, the good thing is, at this point, um, I've done plenty of both, and I think uh, most people realize that now, because if they want to check me out and they go to IMDb, they can see the variety right. of things, you know. Yeah. Now, you also, you, you were in the beginning of Prison Break, too, right? I was, yeah. So now, what would the, because that, like, that was one of those shows, I didn't watch it, my girlfriend watched uh-huh. it, people who watched it loved it. It's yeah. one of those things, there's certain shows where people just... Are, it's like a Star They're, Trek. They get addicted to yeah. it, or, or Breaking Bad, or something right. like that. Where you know, or Game of Thrones. That they just get this Jones for the thing. Right. Do you watch that? Um, uh, which Game one? of Thrones. I did up until recently, and then I just haven't been. I, I, I has no interest to me. I, yeah. I don't know why. My friends are like you got to watch it. I'm like, oh. I've watched. I watched it, and I tried to like it. And I watched it, and it's amazing to look at. But I'm like. Yeah, I, got, I have no idea what's going on here, and you know, I, I I start to lose interest, quite frankly. So Prison Break, how'd that come about? Um, Prison Break came about because, um, like I said, I was married and I had a crisis kind of in my, uh, in my marriage in that my ex-wife was very sick with, uh, Crohn's disease and, um, she became so sick that she was basically bedridden and I couldn't take care of her and my son who was like six at the time. Um, and so I, and, and things were getting kind of crappy out here for me anyway, work-wise, and so I formulated a plot to move back to my hometown in northern Illinois because my sister had gotten divorced and she had this massive house. The bottom, it was like a three-story house and the bottom uh, portion of it, which is pretty spacious, it had all glass looking out on a beautiful lake and everything. I had this idea that I could kind of convert that into like a big apartment and my son would have his own room on another floor and we, we could live there and I could pay my sister some rent and I could get going again. But then I would have my sister and my mother there to help me with my son and my wife when I was commuting down to Chicago. Okay. So that's how I was in Chicago. And I got an audition for Prison Break. And I was reading for like a a smaller part because I was like new to town again. And then all of a sudden this producer, Steve Beers, who was our producer on Magnificent Seven, comes walking through the room and goes, Tony, what are you doing here? And I explain the situation. He goes, huh, hang on a second. And then he goes and he talks to Claire Simon, the casting director, and she comes out with different sides for Robin Tunney's fiance. <laughs> so, so funny. I read for that and um, and got it. And uh, Brett Ratner uh, directed the pilot. And I did a – we were into about like episode eight or something. And I'm reading the uh, script. And I'm reading it and I'm thinking – oh, this is a really good episode for my character. And then I turn the page and it says, his lifeless eyes, laying in a pool of his own blood, his lifeless eyes stare at the ceiling. And I thought, ooh, this oh. is a really bad episode for me. <laughs> so that's that's the, that's the nature of being a recurring character. You never know when you're going to you know, get it. You know? That's funny. So now you're doing the drama. Then, then you started going back to doing 
sitcoms, but you did like Make It or Break It. Make It or Break It was not a sitcom. Oh, was uh, that was a, that was actually a drama about the gymnastics gymnastics okay. world, Rapesy family. But then, yes, I did uh, Shake It Up. Now, how did Disney. you? It's something like your your whole career. I mean, you you did comedy and did drama, then you did like you know Prison Break, and then you do a drama for ABC Family. I mean, how did how does did they sit there and do, do I guess as casting directors say, and it's a compliment to you that you can act because uh, you know you don't see someone going from oh yeah yeah from Prison Break or this or this or you know and then all of a sudden hey okay come to do a ABC Family series. I mean that must have been pretty cool. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean um, the the AB, uh, 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 the uh, if you're talking about Make It or Break It, the gymnastics show, the way that came about was very interesting because I was reading for one part, and um, it went well, but then I went out, and um, like five minutes later, Michael Testa, the casting director, just caught me as I was walking out and said, hey, would you mind reading something else? And I ended up reading uh, the character that I ended up playing, which when I was reading the script, I thought, I should be playing this guy. Okay. And because uh, he was more along the kind of um i don't know morally ambiguous rich bastards that i've been playing i made a little cottage industry out of that and i thought i should be playing this guy it's right in my wheelhouse and um i came back in read it and got it yeah so so i mean it's just funny with like abc family it's a it's it's a different demographic now i mean yeah you, i mean people recognize you from different roles right but like kids who watch tv and teens are very um they're like there's ones who just sit there they get into it they they recognize you well that's been uh, something very cool about just the last few years is that between uh make it or break it which is a kind of a teen audience and and even shake it up which is like more nine to 14 you know more kids or tweens or whatever um uh i feel like i have this whole new audience you know because when i'm back home in the midwest in my hometown if i go walking through a mall with my sister or my mom or whatever I get recognized a lot by younger people for those shows. And that's kind of fun for me that it's, you know, that it's not something older, that it's not something from 20 years ago or whatever. It's something fresh, something new. And um, they're young and they're excited about it. And because those fans, you know, they become your fans, you know, forever, really. Right. Um, I mean, one of the people that I worked with on that show uh, was Candace Cameron, who played DJ on Full House. Candace Cameron Bure, as she's now uh, known, um, and man, you know the Full House fan, her fans from when she was 10 years old are still her fans, and um, and that that show is hung out in syndication in such a massive way that they're bringing it back again, uh, I think for Netflix. Yeah, they're redoing, yeah. they're yeah. doing it yeah. again. So now, now how'd you meet up with Brian Herslinger, and how how did you do stand up comedy with Jay Black? Okay, I um, I ended up doing stand up comedy with Jay Black because. Um, I met him through Brian Herzlinger. Um, their best friend, like they've been friends forever, and they like write together. Since second grade, and they were writing partners and stuff like that. So to kind of backtrack the story, um, um, uh, Jay was trying to kind of like, uh, you know, I mean, he's, he's a major, major campus comedian. You know, he's voted the uh, favorite college comedian right. and all this kind of stuff. And but he, I guess, didn't know a, a ton of, you know, or at least not all of the, the club owners out here. And I'd been doing a lot of shows at the Laugh Factory. So you were actually getting up and doing stand-up. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, uh, do you know Jay Davis? Yeah, I know. I, I, we know. We're friends on Facebook. I know he yeah. books a lot of stuff. I, I, you know, um, I've known Jay since before he ever did stand-up. You know, and he, you know, he kind of impresarios a lot of different shows around town. So I called him up when I first wanted to kind of, you know, get into that realm. And he got me in there. And I, before I knew it, I was doing, you know, regular sets at places like the Laugh Factory. And um, so... And Jay wanted to do a show at the Laugh Factory, so I think I helped him to either get into Jay's show or Tom Arnold's show, because I was doing Tom Arnold's show, too, at, at the Laugh Factory. And um, and then uh, then Jay had me open for him once um, when he was doing Cal Polytechnic up in uh, San Luis Obispo. Okay. So, so it was just a couple times, you know. Um, but I've mostly uh, encountered Jay by working on Brian's movies. And how, uh, because they co-write them. And, um, but I met Brian Herzlinger um, um, because Ian Ziering you know, from 90210, uh, which is another show that I did back in the day. You did that show? I did Beverly Hills 90210, okay. yeah. One uh, episode or? Uh, yeah, I, I did this Halloween episode where I tried, I was dressed as a cowboy and I, I tried to, uh, to rape Kelly. 
Oh, uh, well, that's, yeah. that's a great you know, episode. You know. yeah, a must-see episode. <laughs> oh, sure. No, it's, it's notorious. You know, I was a rapist on 90210. And, um, and uh, d- 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 what is her name again? Jennifer, uh, Jen- Jenny Garth. Okay. Uh, who's uh, beautiful and lovely and very nice. Um, but anyway, um, uh, they had Ian Ziering from the old 90210 uh, slated to play uh, um, Heather Graham's gynecologist in this screwball uh, comedy they were doing called Baby on Board. And um, Ian had to fall out at the last minute, I think, because of a conflict. And um, so... I found out about this thing and submitted um, uh, a uh, um, an audition because they were casting it out of Chicago, but Claire Simon, the casting director in Chicago, knew me because I'd been there for two years. Right. And I'd done Prison Break, et cetera. So she called up uh, um, Ann Geddes, my, my agent at the time, who was since retired, and Richard Lewis, who was handling that project, and, um, and said, uh, you know, well, Tony put himself on tape for this. And so I did, and it turned out that Brian was sort of a Seinfeld fan, and he was like, "Hey, that's Jimmy. We can get Jimmy," you know. And uh, so I like flew out the next day. It was like very, very all of a sudden. And then I was out there for a couple weeks, and we made this little movie with John Heather Graham, John Corbett, um, Jerry O'Connell. And, and where'd you uh, shoot that? Chicago. Okay. Mm-hmm. So then, but then now you've been in a few other movies of his. And then I was also in a movie called How Sweet It Is, which was this musical. With Michael Pere. With Michael Pere. Because actually, Brian was on my show when he was just doing that. And I ended up becoming, uh, Michael Pere started following me on Twitter. And I've gone, I think he lives up in uh, Ventura, though. Yeah, he and does. I, I, I sent it back yeah. and forth with him about doing my show. And uh-huh. then he's like, I'm never in town, but then I didn't hear from Michael Pere. But, yeah. but as me and Brian were saying, because we're both from New Jersey, so yeah. the editing the cruisers thing is, you know, oh, yeah. that, that was like a. And he, he looks amazing if you've, if you've seen him lately. I mean, you guys. Built like a, can I, can I swear on this yeah. show? Built like a brick shit house, as we used to say. You know, I mean, he's in amazing shape, looks great, great attitude, really nice. And um, but anyway, yeah, he was in that, and um, that's a really good cast in that. Oh yeah, uh, Erica Christensen, Paul Sorvino, Eric Bergen. It was his first movie, and then his next movie was Jersey Boys, and now he's on Madam Secretary, uh, with uh um. Well, Madam Secretary on CBS with a whole bunch of people on that show, and he plays uh, Madam Secretary's uh, um, secretary, basically. Okay. Yeah. He's the yeah. secretary, of Madam Secretary. Yeah. So, so you did you did that, and uh... and then I did um, uh, a movie that ended up being called uh, Meet Your Valentine, uh, starring Scott Wolf, uh, where I just played uh, Scott Wolf's doctor now does he just like call you and say hey i got a part for you with now because brian i mean is well, that how I it go, works or do you have to audition even though you <laughs> you know how it usually works now i go through the breakdowns myself which i'm not supposed to but i get hold of them through an underground railroad of information and um because i've i've knocked around for so long that i found that just going by the standard you know agent although i have great agents and everything this the agent um agent casting director paradigm it's so easy for me to get shrugged off you know as they're playing the name game or this that and the other thing and i might get caught in in that in that conversation it may go no further but i may know someone on the other side of that conversation a producer a director a writer who i can call or text or facebook or you know whatever and say you know look i haven't seen this casting director in a while and i may not be on his or her radar uh, is there any way you could suggest that they bring me in, you know, and then then it happens then I get in there And that's how I've gotten a lot of my work recently um, You have to do it in a way that you know is, is politic and, and not offensive to anybody You have to kind of pick your shots, but I find for me because I've been around for so long. It's not inappropriate, right? You know and um, So with with Brian I'll usually see his name on a breakdown. I'll see these up to another another <laughs> show and I'll go through the uh, through the through the breakdown, look at the characters, and I'll send him a text that says something like, um, "Say the character's name is Phil Davis." Phil Davis? Question mark. <laughs> and then he'll go, you know, let me get back to you. And then that process begins. And sometimes it works out, and sometimes it doesn't. On his last movie, um, I was angling for this certain role in there, but the producers wanted somebody else. 
so it didn't work out. Now it's also, I mean, it just shows on the make it to break it though. That, that was just that came up out of, out of I mean, it's a comedy. I mean, no, I'm, I'm sorry. What's the what's the comedy one? Uh, Step it up. Uh, no. Shake it up. How did that come about? Because I mean, it's I mean, once again, you're going back into comedy, which must have been made you happy. I um um I saw a breakdown, and um I saw that they're looking to cast the uh, boyfriend of this certain character on the show. Um, and I saw that the actress playing that character was someone I did a pilot with years ago and I knew her, you know, and I knew we had good chemistry and stuff like that. So I, I brought this all to my agent's attention who brought it to the attention of the casting director, uh, Suzanne Goddard Smythe. And um, at first Suzanne said, well, that could work, and I know who Tony is, but we he's a fireman, right? And we're looking for, like, a real, like, big dude, guys, like 6'3", and right. whatever. Well, I, apparently they brought in a, a bunch of guys who fit that physical description, and they didn't exactly hit home runs with Rob Lauderstein, the uh, exec producer, in terms of being funny. So then I went in and, and read for it, and... Um, I could tell right away that he, that he liked me and thought I was funny and that I got this character. Because it was another one of these characters who's, he's a good guy and he does an important job, but he's kind of, you know, also as dumb as a bag of hammers. And um, there's a certain way to play something like that that's funny and works and belie is believable, but it can be tricky too. Uh, it, it's not easy to play stupid people. Right. And so... It's like it's not easy to write a stupid joke. It, it it's is. Hard. It's, it's hard. hard to write a it, stupid joke because exactly. it has to be... Not it has to be stupid, but not so stupid that it's not funny. Right, exactly, and uh, that's a good comparison actually. And and so, um, but I went in, the audition went well, and then I got that gig. You know? See, that's cool. Now you're also in Hand of God. Yes. Now my girlfriend did background work for Hand of God. Oh wow! And I think there was a big party. I don't know if there was a big scene. Where it was a big party, and it was like the upper two percent. I don't know, but she said it was cool. They shot it in Pasadena. They gave all this cool makeup to these girls. Oh yeah, but uh, how did that come about? And that's Ron Perlman's in that, which was, who, he, who uh, I worked with on Ma Magnificent, on Magnificent Seven, Seven. Um, and that is largely coincidental. Although uh, it was the same kind of thing, I saw the breakdown, and um, I did not know the casting directors particularly well, or more to the point, they didn't know me particularly well as far as I knew, and um, but I saw that it was written. I saw that it was starring Ron Perlman, and he's also an executive producer. I saw that it's directed by uh, Mark Forster, who's an A-list uh, feature director. He did Monsters Ball, Quantum of Solace, Finding Neverland, and all these great movies. And um, But I also saw that the other executive producer was the writer of the show, um, and, and a guy named Ben Watkins. And I met Ben maybe seven, eight years ago, doing an episode of Burn Notice. And it was the first thing that Ben had written that actually had gotten on the air, and I was the guest star. Me and Lucy Lawless from Xena were the guest stars. And um, so I got to know Ben, and Ben and I had a mutual friend and uh, who would have like barbecues and stuff like that, and I would, I would see, see Ben all the time. And I got to know Ben and his wife and his four sons, and I've gotten to know Ben quite well over like the last seven, eight years, and all of a sudden, He's the showrunner of the show after Burn Notice. And um, I saw a couple characters in the pilot, and he picked the one that he thought I was right for. And I'm like, okay, that's the one I'm reading for. You know, it's your baby. Right. And, and um, so he kind of got me into casting so that they could kind of, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, just as, as kind of a, I think also just, you know, being respectful to them in their process. Um, so I, I read for them and was put on tape with them and then they showed the tape to Mark Forster and then Mark Forster wanted to meet me and then I read for him and then that's how I got uh, the part of Gilbert McCauley who is the sort of assistant district uh, attorney in this very very corrupt little fictional town uh, in, in California and um, I'm kind of in and out the first season but uh, according to what I'm hearing um, uh, there's a good chance I might get uh, sort of beefed up for season two if there is a season two. So I'm looking forward to that. That's always cool. It's always yeah. good. There's there's hope on the horizon. Yes. Now you also shot Mad Men. 
I did. Now, was that where you did you watch that show? I did. And so, what uh, was that like? It was um, a fascinating experience. Matthew Weiner um, is a brilliant guy. The guy who ran that show, which is not surprising, and. It's what's funny about him. He's very meticulous and very controlling in a way. I mean, he really wants to oversee every speck and nuance of that show, you know. And it all had his thumbprint on it. And um, and he would he would have been obnoxious were it not for the fact that he were so he is so likable and charming and smart and right and self-deprecating. So he's a very interesting, funny, great guy. And you know, the meticulousness of it comes across in the show, and it's why it was so brilliant. So you had to say every line without, with every preposition exactly in place, or you got a note from the script supervisor. So that was an interesting thing. Okay. And, um, but uh, I, I worked with Elizabeth Moss, who was lovely, and, and um, uh, you know, just had a nice little moment there. And, and with, you know, it's another historic show that I got to at least be a part of. That must you be know. great, though. Yeah, you're a part of TV history. It, yeah, you know, I mean, between, you know, uh, Cheers and Seinfeld and uh, Mad Men and, you know, Prison Break and, you know, on and on, it's, uh, I'm, I'm floating around there in some pretty good stuff, not to mention the CSIs and CSI Miami. Yeah, oh, and, the, know, yeah, kind of Cold stuff. Case, as we yeah, said, Cold, cold Case. case. Yeah. Burn, my yeah. girlfriend loved Burn Notice, loved that show. Yes. Now, uh, are you doing stand-up anymore at all? Or? I'm not doing it right now, um, and um, not that I never will again, but, you know, every once in a while, you know, there's a... A benefit or a this that and the other thing and you know uh, that you can participate in and that's when you can dust off those chops that's when it's nice to have done it to know that you can do it and to know that you can write material to an occasion that's uh, that would be of most interest to me in terms of my stand-up skills and uh, now I'm looking at your IMDB you're you're gonna be in a Christmas movie I am we did a, a, a movie we still have to pick up a few shots um, uh, we shot that up in Utah uh, it's called a Christmas Eve miracle and um, we got um, Olivia Dabo plays my wife. Dina De Laurentiis plays my daughter. Jonathan Silverman is in it. C. Thomas Howell. Um, you know, I mean, just you know, a, a, a great cast. It's a great cast. Yeah, yeah. Now, are you a big Christmas guy? Do you like the Christmas? Who doesn't like Christmas? Yeah, I always have. I love yeah. those Christmas movies. Yeah. I'll yeah. go through like I was so bummed because I guess when I changed from Charter to Uverse, uh -huh. I, I didn't get the Hallmark Channel anymore. And the Hallmark Channel have like. I don't, I don't even know how they make so many damn Christmas movies because you're sitting there going, wait a second. They start showing these in November and they're yeah. all no repeats until after Christmas. Yeah. And I was bummed because they're good. Cause yeah. they're, they're, and I heard for actors are great because they're they're fun. Oh, yeah. You know, and I was uh, teasing Candace Cameron on uh, Candace Cameron Bure on Twitter about it because she wasn't in our Christmas movie, you know, and I, I said I realized that, you know, she had she had hit her 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 ceiling of making only eight of them a year, right? You know? <laughs> she's the queen of Christmas movies. So, so what else is coming up? Anything else coming up in the next future? You know what? I I am really not sure. Uh, I mean, um, I think that we're coming back with Hand of God, um, uh, in February, for season two, hopefully. Um, and that first season, season one, the the pilot has been available on Amazon Prime for a while, and I think you can watch it for free. Um, but season one of Hand of God, I believe, is coming out sometime um, later in this summer. Okay. So, so within the next uh, month or two. Um, so it's ten episodes, season uh, season one, and then I think we're supposed to, if all goes well, go back to shooting season two in February. As for what's going on between now and February, I'm just out there beating the bushes and auditioning as usual. You gotta do that, man. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for coming. Uh, hey, my pleasure. Now, 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 uh, how do people get in touch with you? you tweet. You do... I'm on Twitter. I'm, is Anthony Stark? Uh, yep. And that's with an E, people. It's uh, an E at the end. Yes. Uh, uh, Anthony, uh, uh, capital A, and then Stark, capital S, S-T-A-R-K-E. And you tweet a lot? I do. Fair enough. Do you tweet jokes or you just tweet what's going on? I or... like to tweet jokes. Okay. I, like to, I like to do what I call counterpunching, is, is I retweet with a comment. Okay. You know, you know, and that's usually where I find my job. I'm going to follow you. Okay, good. Because I tweet Please a lot. Do. So people follow him, Anthony Stark. It's Please a, do. It's a... S T A R K E. Yeah. And also, you can follow me on Twitter at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. I'm always tweeting stupid stuff. I, I like that. I, I tweet Philadelphia sports stuff to the guys I know back in Philly, Big Daddy Graham and all them. And so, if we do that, go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have uh, 390 episodes up. You'll find a bunch from the early days. Uh, or you can email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. If you want to listen to me on iTunes or Stitcher, type in one word, Cooper Talk, in the search. Just type one word. And it makes it easy, and you'll find all my episodes there. It makes it easy if you want to listen to it on a tablet. 
And also my new website, StopTheSalt.com, my uh, low-sodium cooking for one without killing yourself. Mm. After my health problems, I wrote it to 120 easy recipes. There's no pictures that intimidate you. You know, the ingredients, there's not all these crazy ingredients. If you don't have cumin, don't worry. You can still use my book. You don't have to go buy cumin. So get that. There's 120 recipes broken up in different categories, easy to make. So that's about it. Uh, follow Anthony Stark on Twitter. Follow me at Cooper Talk. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. I'll talk to you guys next week.